0: Yeah, I'm fine with that. I have thoughts. (laughs) Are they negative?
1: (laughs) We have opinions and microphones.
2: Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast, brought to you by the best deck building site on the web for the Commander format, EDH Rec. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined today by my lovely co-hosts. First up, the speedster whose article series takes you from 60 to 100, Matt Morgan. Hey everybody, how are we doing tonight? Next, the man whose articles remind you to look in the margins, Dana Roach. Good evening, all you beautiful people. And I'm Joey Schultz, author of the Commander Showdown series. All these articles and more can be found at EDHREC.com, along with some awesome featured community content, such as other Commander podcasts and gameplay videos. EDHREC is a fantastic deck-building resource that compiles data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new Commander decks. And here on EDHRECcast, we're going to give all that data a little more context. What's our topic this week, fellas? We've got the underplayed Commanders that we like. Yeah, sort of dovetailing off of our episode last week with Dean Goody, where we talked about a bunch of underplayed cards. We also want to talk about some underplayed commanders as well. Before we get started, though, Dana, I think you've recently received some new cards. Do you want to
0: tell us about them? So sure. Um, Today's mailbag, I had a couple interesting things. I picked up an attrition for my Tesa or Cyan deck. I wanted one more sack outlet, and I was kind of looking around, and I'm like, oh, well, why don't I run attrition and kill something while I sacrifice it? Because I didn't have one anywhere, and so I wound up getting a pretty good deal on one of the um, Amonquette Invocation attritions. Which, as I'm sitting here looking at the card, at first I was like, "Oh well, you know, it's, it's like almost ten bucks for the regular version, and this one was twenty one or something." So I thought, "Oh, I'm being clever. I'll get the Invocation. That's not going to get reprinted ever. And why not do that?" But man, this is this kind of an ugly card as I'm looking at it right here in my hand. But whatever, it'll play. So. I picked up that and I picked up a place set of deep freezes in foil from Dominaria, which is the enchantment, the blue enchantment that gives a creature becomes zero four, gets defender and loses all abilities. And I put one in a deck, um, just tested it out. and I was pretty happy with it. I, I think we had commented on it even during our previous show that it was a good card, but I liked it a lot. So I picked up four more in foil for no reason other than it's a good looking foil and I wanted it, so I grabbed four of those.
2: Nice. Sounds good. I haven't seen Deep Freeze yet myself, but it does look like a pretty intriguing card. As to the invocations, I have to admit, I still haven't been able to get past how they look.
1: They look like Yu-Gi-Oh cards.
0: Uh, they do, but, <laughs> yeah. but some of them are okay. But man, this one is just kind of muddy and the art. It's a zombie guy with horns spearing something. It's not a. It's not one of the better ones, I'll say that.
2: I think my favorite has to be Entomb, especially just how creative it is that there appears to be someone who's being buried in the sand. I think it's very evocative. But it's so hard to see the art because the frame is so small.
0: Yeah, right. The fr- it, so much of the art gets soaked up by that giant, thick, ugly frame. Yeah.
2: But anyway, we're not here to just rip on cards. We're here to talk about what cards we got. Matt, did you get anything interesting? Um, I don't know if it's interesting,
1: but uh, the the packaging was interesting. So uh, I, on TCG Player, they have the $2 minimum order. And I bought a bunch of Secrets of the Dead, so I only needed one for my uh my the deck that I'm building, C- Commander, courtesy of you guys, soon. <laughs> but yeah, so I bought $2 worth of 15-cent Secrets of the Dead. So I got, I think it was like 20 copies, I just bought however many that seller had. Um, and they made, it came in like a bubble mailer for $2 worth of cards, so like the shipping was more than the like total sale probably. But they they made, like, a binder sleeve, a binder page, out of top loaders, and they just taped four of them together, did, like, a two-by-two two grid all taped together with, like, 20 Secrets of the Dead in there. <laughs> and, like, I opened it up I was like, oh okay. This was creative enough that I, I can appreciate what they did.
0: That's pretty cool. So now you have every Secrets of the Dead you're ever going to ever need.
1: Oh, totally. Like, I, I only need one, but I couldn't buy just one because it is like a quarter, however much they were. I don't even remember anymore, but I had to
2: buy $2 worth of them from one seller, so. there were worse buys. There are definitely worse buys. I haven't picked up anything new myself, save for one card, and that's Tatiova, Benthic Druid, the amazing uncommon landfall commander that lets you draw cards every time you play lands, and that's going straight into my Crufix deck. I'm really excited to play her. I played a couple of games this weekend and unfortunately never saw her, so I don't yet know how amazing she feels to play, but I'm really excited to.
0: What I've started doing, particularly if it's a new card like that that I really want to see in a deck, is I like usually just ask the pod, like, hey, can I shuffle this into my like top 20 cards or something? Particularly if it's been like, I've been wanting to see this card for four weeks and I have not drawn it yet, I just say, hey guys, you might have put this somewhere in the top of the library and no one ever complains.
1: I like that. Mm-hmm. Just communicating is the big thing.
0: Particularly if you're playing with friends and if it's been like... Because that's happened before where I put a new card in the deck and a month and a half goes by and I've you've not drawn it. I mean, that just occurs sometimes. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah,
2: maybe I might try that trick out because I'm definitely excited to see how she plays. But I'm also excited to talk about some of these underplayed commanders, so let's get the show underway. Matt, do you want to start us off with your first underplayed commander?
1: Sure. So my first underplayed commander kind of suffers from that pre-con effect of being a secondary commander that we talked about a while ago but miri weatherlight duelist uh is one of my favorite commanders she's well outside the top five Slesnia, you know green white commanders of all time but as soon as i saw her like i knew i really wanted to build a miri deck uh it's super fun i'm just green white that's just my personality type i love getting ahead of the curve getting value uh, a lot of my decks are very toolboxy so i always have Kind of like what I mentioned last week, I like having answers to any different situation. And green-white does that very well. So Miri Weatherlight Duelist uh, does a couple things that uh, I really like with go-wide decks, and it makes combat really hard to navigate. So Miri Weatherlight Duelist, I'll just read uh, the commander real quick. It's one green-white, so three cost for a 3-2 first strike Cat Warrior. And whenever Miri Weatherlight Duelist attacks, each opponent can't block with more than one creature this combat, And then as long as Miri Weatherlight Duelist is tapped, no more than one creature can attack you each combat. So one thing that I really liked about my old Narset deck was Reconnaissance, which is fantastic with Miri because you can attack and make it hard to block, get her out of combat if she's going to die. Just a very, very fun deck. And the one thing that I kind of talked about suffers from that pre-con effect where all of her decks, you look at the signature cards, you look at her top played cards, they're all cats, which is fine and dandy, but her abilities don't really match up with that. You want to go really wide to make sure you they can't block all your dudes. So yeah, it stinks that a lot of the cards that you see on her rec page, they all line up as the cats because they all came in the pre-con, but she's one of those secondary commanders that you don't want to build with the precon cards as much as you do with the primary, which was Arabo.
2: Yeah, you can definitely see that effect looking through her signature cards or her top cards. You've got things like Kasali Pride Mage, Gizal Nakatal War Pride, Jadit Ojanan of Afrava, Like, not all of these cards necessarily synergize with her. I feel like especially since she can prevent people from blocking your entire swarm, you'd want more of mm-hmm. the quintessential token cards that you'd see in a Trostani or a Reese the Redeemed deck, for example.
1: Yeah, I think of, of the signature cards, the only ones that I probably would play, and I even wrote an article when she was first when she first was spoiled about just green green white little kid aggro decks from standard. But the only cards like that show up on her frequently played cards, White Sun Zenith, you make an army of tokens, that's all great. Um, Sword of the Animist, just a great ramp card in general, and Kasali Pride Mage, just a very good utility creature. Those are the only signature cards from the deck that I would probably play. In an actual Miri Weatherlight Duelist deck.
2: Right. So Miri at the moment, she's got 235 decks to her name, which isn't a whole lot, and she's also currently the 10th most built Selesnia Commander. That's pretty low down the page. Mm-hmm. And I I think you're right. That's she's definitely someone who when she was first spoiled when we first saw the preview from Miri, I was very intrigued. I was I didn't know entirely how to build around her, but I certainly wanted to see how it would be done. So have you tried your hand at building a Miri deck yet?
1: Yeah, I built a Miri deck for a little bit. I didn't keep it around too much because I I built it mainly for the article that I wrote, but it was super fun. I focused more on, like I said, uh, reconnaissance type effects, ways to tap and untap uh, my commander or just my cards in general. So I was playing some really fun cards like Cryptolith Rite with a lot of X spells. So I had an army of tokens and I had a bunch of mana. Uh, Second Harvest was probably one of my favorite ramp spells, because you could go wide, swing, you know they're all going to survive because they can't block them, and then you go out and get 10 basics for 3 mana. It was crazy. And then just stuff like Glare of Subduel um, is also really, really good. You can kind of set up your own like prison effects where you know they can't attack you with only one person, but then you can tap them down or untap them, whatever you need to do. Uh, it was a really fun deck actually there you know for being green white people kind of think you know you're just going to do tokens you're just going to do a very linear game plan but there's a lot of fun things that you could do like if you cast if you cast second harvest off of three mana from three creatures with cryptolith right you automatically get three lands for three mana and that's just the base rate so it's really fun i also played like sigarda host of herons who's just a pet card of mine for commander for a long time but yeah, it was, it's just a really, really fun deck.
0: She's also really ag- aggressively costed. I mean, three mana for a mm-hmm. 3-2. And she has First Strike, so that 3-2 isn't even really three. She hits... She's much more difficult to deal with than she looks like she is on paper. Um, and I think also... I think part of the problem with, with why she's not in a lot of decks is I think people, when they build a token deck, you know, like you mentioned, like Joey mentioned, with Risa Redeemed and with Tristani, I think people by default assume they want their commander to do token things, like make tokens. And mm-hmm. I don't know if that's even really necessary. Like, is one additional token or two additional tokens that you're making with your commander, does that is that worth it in the sea of 20 tokens you're hopefully making using other things compared to Miri, who's going to make them just unblockable wh- while simultaneously protecting yourself at the same time?
1: Yeah, she does, she does the token thing, but from a very different standpoint, almost like Siddhar Kondo. It's, she's not doing the typical token commander thing. She's doing token combat is how she's souping you up. And I think if you're running a token deck in general, you definitely want Miri in there because it makes it really hard to deal with combat. But I really like Miri as the head of a 99.
2: Right, that was going to be one of the questions that I asked. Why would you want to see Miri at the head of the deck as opposed to just in the 99? There are a couple of cards that are sort of similar to her ability, like a Dueling Grounds or a Silent Arbiter, which also have a similar only-one-person-can-attack type of feeling. But hers is slightly different. And as you mentioned, she offers... She, she opens the door to a type of combat that your opponents don't usually get to interact with all that well. Mm-hmm. It's definitely weighted against them. And that can be a neat thing to see. I think... If I had to liken it to another commander, it might be kind of similar to Azuri Renegade Leader, the mono-green Azuri. He is an elf commander, and he certainly says, like, oh, I can save the lives of my elves by regenerating them. But one of the most important abilities that he has is the overrun on a stick for all of your elves. He pumps them all up, your entire elvish army, so that they can bust through with a whole bunch of damage. And Miri is sort of similar along that line. As with Azuri, you don't want a commander that's making you elf tokens so much what you want is a commander who allows you to use those tokens combatively.-hmm
1: And uh, people like I said, they think of token commanders as making tokens like Dana pointed out too or creating more tokens or, or something you know doing the tokens. Miri doesn't explicitly say your token creatures or token creatures you control anything like that but it's you kind of have to you know dig a little bit to see, oh man, I attack with 20 creatures plus Miri. They
2: can only block one of those creatures. Right. That's one of the values of looking at underplayed commanders. They force you to think outside the box and to use their abilities in ways that are a little less traditional to help spice up the the, the game, as it were.
0: I think this, this is a really easy commander to experiment with, too, I think. I think if you are running a Risa Redeem deck right now, or maybe even a Tristani deck, and it isn't super specifically tuned to that commander. Like if you're just running a bunch of token producers in Reese and you're running Reese because he's a one drop and he makes tokens and there's not, there's no additional synergy beyond him being good at making bodies. I think you could very easily just, just swap him for Miri and see what the difference is. And I think people will be shocked at how effective she is atop that same deck without even making any changes.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's fun because she's very green white with combat. It's just very, you know, here's what I have. What are you going to do about it? I'm going to make it hard for you to to deal with the things that I'm doing. Those are some of the things that I just, I personally love about green white decks in general. And she kind of exemplifies that. And um, I've even, for a hot second, not very long, but I tried her in a a Maverick deck in Legacy with Knight of the Reliquary and, you know, Thalia, stuff like that. Wasn't great, but it was super fun just getting to play it and watch people try to figure out how am I going to deal with this because I have a 3 2 first striker. But there's also an 8 8 Reliquary I got to deal with. And uh, she just makes things very difficult for defending players. Uh, if you like combat and you like green white, Miri is a, definitely a deck that you want to try making.
2: So, Dana, you mentioned Reese a short while ago. Do you want to tell us about one of
0: your preferred underplayed commanders? Sure. Um, I actually picked Reese the Exiled for one of my underplayed commanders. Reese redeemed is the one drop, but Reese the exiled is a three drop. He's two in a green, for a legendary creature, elf warrior. And whenever Reese attacks, you gain one life for each elf you control. And you may spend a black mana to sacrifice an elf and regenerate to re- regenerate Reese the exiled. So he's only in, let's see, uh, currently he's only in 88 decks on EDH rec, So that's a really low number. So here's why I like him. First of all, I mentioned this with. Um, with Miri, but three mana is a pretty aggressive casting cost. And in green, it, it, it's a nice number because there's so many two-drop ramp spells that you can ramp on turn two, cast w- without interrupting your plan to cast your commander. Drop Reese on turn three, and then when turn four, roll, four rolls around, you know maybe have five or even six mana available. So the casting cost is nice, and he's two colors because of the black activated ability. But you're not reliant on both colors to cast him, so you're not gonna get that situation where you draw three Forests and don't have a black mana to cast him, and you have to wait till turn you know four or five, or wait until you can search up a Swamp somehow to get it in play. If you have a green mana, you can get him onto the field at the very least. That's not a huge deal, but it's also not nothing. But the real reason I think he's a little bit underplayed is he's got quite a few useful things just baked into him as a card. First of all, just by himself, he enables Exquisite blood sanguine Bond combo. Because when he attacks, you gain life for each elf you control, and he's an elf. So right there, you get the life trigger. So if you want to run that combo, if you are a terrible person, um, he enables it right there for you, built right in, and he's in the colors. But even if you don't want to run the combo and you're running enough elves, Sanguine Bond with him on the field is just going to gain you life and hit somebody else in the face. And if you're making elf tokens, which you probably should be in that deck, it could be a lot of life you're hitting somebody for. That's just as part of his kit by default he's also in the colors that can make tokens and he's in colors that make elf tokens specifically he's in colors that can double tokens and that can recur creatures Um, and he's in colors with grave pact and with dictative airbos so he's a sack outlet on a stick in colors that can abuse that better than any color combination
2: that's a really good point to bring up. As you noted, he does have that black activated ability which allows him to be a golgari commander instead of a mono-green commander, but having that sac outlet, that's the thing that intrigues me most about Reese.
0: Right, I mean, you can just if you have one of those one of those spells out, you can just clear the board as long as there's a couple of elves you can sacrifice. You, you know, who cares if you're generating Reese or not? Just sac a couple of elves, blow up everything in play, we people have to sacrifice stuff to, you know, grave pact or dictator or whatever, and then swing through Clearly, for free with no nothing left to block, and then gain some life in the process again.
1: Yeah, so I, I think I really...
0: he, he does something that's kind of unique. He, he does things that are kind of unique in that particular package. It's like nothing else that really does those things on one card.
1: Yeah, I I really like kind of what you were pointing about pointing out. Uh, you can sacrifice to regenerate him, clear the board. He's kind of like a, a black green tribal version of Yeheni. Yeah, where you can sacrifice and except, Yenny's obviously mono black. But I really like Yehenny you know, as a commander, too. Um, it's kind of like a, you know, Reese. And I honestly, I forgot that there were two different Reese cards because uh, just Reese the Redeemed kind of takes the spotlight and easy to forget Reese the Exiled. But it's like you took uh, Dwen and the, the Guilt Leaf Dan, combined it with Yeheni and made one card. I, I really like Reese the Exiled now that you you've been talking about him a little bit. So
0: you sold me at least. Well, and you're in, you're, you're in colors with access to, to Mazarik, so you can put counters on things when you sacrifice stuff. And you're in colors with access to Smothering Abomination, so you can draw cards off that sacrifice stuff, too. So there's just a lot of kind of small-scale synergy baked into Golgari as well.
2: So there's a couple of different options for Elf Tribal decks. We have Azuri, which I mentioned earlier. There's uh, We res- have Azuri. Redeemed is- <laughs> There's uh, Reese the Redeemed as well. There, there are a couple of different options. You've got the new Rada era of Keld. In green black, we do have this version of Reese, but we also have Nath of the Guilt Leaf, the 5 mana 4 4 legendary elf warrior who makes people discard cards, and then whenever your opponents discard cards, he makes elf tokens. That's another possible elf tribal deck in Golgari colors. I'm wondering what you think about playing Reese versus playing Nath. Why would one person choose to go with
0: Reese as opposed to, the, to Mr.
2: Discard make a bunch of elf tokens guy?
0: Well, it's probably highly meta-dependent as well. But in my experience, I've seen, I think, three different Nath decks over the years come through my meta. And every time the Nath deck generates hate, disproportionate to the ability to handle it. Like, Zer the Enchanter generates hate. You, you play a Zer deck, people assume you're going to be doing Xur things, and they they generally come at you immediately. But that deck can also maybe deal with it. You're in the right color combination. Xur's aggressively comes out. It just wins the game. Nath doesn't win the game quickly, and you just can't handle everyone swinging at you because they just don't want to spend the entire game with no hand. So I think Nath generates hate from people you're playing against, at least where I've played, in a way that reese just wouldn't. People aren't going to want to kill you immediately because you're playing reese the Exiled, whereas with something like Nath, at least in my experience, no one wants to deal with that nonsense.
2: That's a good point, actually. That's I would also kind of call that the Nikasar problem.
0: For sure. Like, Nikasar makes everyone draw
2: extra cards, but it also hurts all the time, and it's slowly annoying everyone else at the table in a perceptible enough way. Just at the back of their mind, it's constantly nagging and nagging, and eventually they're just going to like, I'm sick of this, let's just kill you. And Nikasar can sometimes not entirely deal with, with with, that hate, that aggression. And Nath, since he does make people discard cards, and at random, no less, I can totally see why people would not be on board for, for that. So Reese is sort of an underground, kind of staying under the radar type of elfish commander. That's a pretty good alternative.
1: Yeah, I've I've never been a big fan of Nath, but now that you got me talking. You know, got me thinking about Reese. I think he's a really good substitute that just people probably don't know about because he's a black green commander, but he's overshadowed because there's so many good black green commanders out there uh, that people probably just forget about Reese. And when you say, you know, oh, I built a Reese deck, they're gonna assume you're talking about the green white one because he's just a very good token commander, anyways. So this is a really good call. I like this, Dana.
0: Well, thank you.
2: On a total side note, I could probably play green-black for the rest of my Commander career and... Just nothing but green black, and I'd be totally happy. There's such a diversity of commanders in Golgari colors from Marin's necromancy to Gitrog's landfallness to Hypatra's minus one counters to Glissa having artifacts. Like, there's so many different things you can do in Golgari. I'm always tickled by that.
1: Well, and speaking of which, you know, I saw your pick for the uh, underplayed commanders and got confused because there wasn't any black in them.
2: <laughs> yes, I do tend to run uh, Black Commanders, but my personal pick for the Underplayed Commanders is actually going to be Balin Wandering Knight. This one also came in the cat deck a bit like that, uh, what was it, the one that you mentioned? Mary. Uh, Mary, Mary. How could I have forgotten this fast? She's Apparently so, I'm still not awake. She's so
1: classy. <laughs> How dare you.
2: Yeah, so Balin Wandering Knight also came in that Catmander deck. She is a 4-mana 3-3 three, three with First Strike, but... She has Double Strike as long as there are two or more equipment attached to it. And for one and a white, you can attach all equipment you control to Balin. Balin currently shows up in 119 decks, and I think that that is just criminally low. Balin is a fantastic Voltron commander, not even just because of the ability to get Double Strike on a person. That's really, really cool. But, man, cheating your equip costs... For two mana, all of your equipment magnetically attached to your Balin, that is fantastic value. And I frankly think that Balin is better than any of the other mono-white equipment commander options that we have available. And those are all really popular, from Kemba Ka Regent, which makes cat tokens for all of your equipment, to Nahiri, the planeswalker that also can create equipment, to Sram, who draws your cards. Now, Sram is pretty fantastic, but Sram is also all about the smaller equipment, so that you can draw a whole bunch of cards and go through your deck more quickly. Balin... Balin is amazing with those really huge equipment like Argentum armor or sword of feast and famine, just all of these really big expensive equipment can just immediately snatch onto, to Balin. That's just such good value. And if you're playing a mono white equipment commander, I really do think that you should heavily consider changing from Kemba or from SRAM or whatever, just giving Balin a try.
1: Yeah. I, th- I think Balin's just kind of overshadowed because y- you mentioned Kemba, who's kind of the gold standard for mono white Voltron, especially equipment. Um, But yeah, Balin Balin intrigued me. Uh, I think the thing that stinks the most is you're you're stuck in mono-white, which, granted, it's gotten a lot better with being able to find equipments and artifacts lately.
2: Yeah. Right, and and that's one of the perks of playing Sram, since he does forgive one of the weaknesses to mono-white. He actually draws you cards for all of your equipment. So Sram definitely gets a significant nod there. But there are 630 Kemba Ka Regent decks, and Kemba I do consider to be a little bit fragile. If you destroy the Kemba the Flood of Token stops coming, and re-equipping all of those equipment back onto your Kemba after you replay her, that can take a lot of time for you to start getting that ball rolling again, whereas Balin can come right back out, and for two mana, you're right back where you started. I think that's a very powerful ability, and I'm just, I'm a little sad to see that Balin only shows up in 119 decks. That just feels so low, but it feels to me that that's the case, because... I guess the market is sort of oversaturated at this point. There are, as I mentioned, so many other different mono-white equipment commanders already. So it's really hard for Balin to break through in that field when we've already sort of seen mono-white do an equipment thing before.
1: I think looking at Balin compared to SRAM, SRAM's only two costs, just one and a white, whereas Balin's two and two white. You have to actively mess up to not cast SRAM on curve. (laughs) In mono-white, that four mana isn't a guarantee all the time. Like you might, you know, keep three lands and you don't see one for five turns. That's a very real thing with mono white. And so I think that's probably a little bit of a turnoff is Balin's expensive to cast for an aggressive mono white commander.
0: You do kind of get that mana back though based on the fact that you can equip everything for two mana. I think people don't see that next step with it where, oh, he's more mana, but the ability to attach equipment for two mana is ridiculous. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I would say not, at instant uh, speed, even that's, right. That's sweet too. <laughs> right. Uh, not not only is Baelen underplayed as a commander, he's only in 997 decks like as a card. I think that is criminally underplayed. I mean, if you're playing Nizan or if you're playing if you're playing Saram as your commander, or you're playing Kemba, or you're playing Nahiri the Planeswalker that can be a commander, or you're playing Danatha Capuchin, or if you're playing you know Jorakadine the Prevailer in in Boros or you're playing one of the Bant commanders that people often play Voltron, whether it's like Janara or Rafik, you probably should have have Balan in that deck as a backup plan. I mean, he should be in way more than 900 decks. There's a lot of those decks that it's named out there, and a small percentage of them are actually running Balan.
2: Right. It's a really fantastic card. And I, I do think that people should... i I don't know with this particular episode we want we want to try and remind people to think a little bit outside the box the numbers on edh rec are not concrete kemba is not a strictly better card than balin just because kemba has more decks kemba has more time she's been around longer so balin balin that like this is a new commander who does deserve some credit even though this field has already been saturated even though we've seen these kinds of effects before we shouldn't just look at the numbers and immediately say, oh, you know, Kemba is probably better because look at the numbers. This is an interesting commander. And the same goes with Reese the Exiled. The same goes with Miri. These are interesting commanders that are getting a little overlooked and it's very helpful to remind yourself what other commanders are out there. Look a little bit farther down the page. Look for cards that don't get a lot of love because they are frequently better than they look. I think what we're actually saying is play more green-white. Yeah, right, for sure, (laughs) yeah. Uh, no, definitely. The
1: world not. would benefit if we played more green-white. Ah, oh, no.
2: Just Alrighty, let's move on now to the head-to-head segment. I'm in the mood to guess some stuff, so Matt, do you want to let us know two cards, and then we'll have to guess which one is more popular than the other.
1: Oh, I suppose. So I was recently trying to do some research, digging up some sacrifice outlets um, to throw in some decks, and I know everybody instantly thinks of Ashnod's Altar. As kind of the gold standard, and I, I won't disagree with that. Ashnod's Altar, being an artifact, uh, it, I mean, it just goes on a bunch of decks, but I wanted to, to find something that's a substitute for decks that can't always play it. I mean, I, well, playing it's a bad way to, to put it because it's an artifact and colorless. Um, but People that want to get away from that, that common uh, number one played thing. Uh, so I found two different sacrifice outlets. One is Goblin Bombardment, so it's an enchantment for one and a red, Sacrifice a creature, Goblin Bombardment, deals one damage to target creature or player. Simple, straightforward, it's it's pretty red. But I also have Viscera Seer, which is uh, just a creature for just a single black. And it's 1-1, uh, one, one, sacrifice a creature to scry one. So, both are kind of the gold standard in their respective colors for sacrifice outlets. What do you think uh, is played more, overall?
0: Man... Um, because they're both really good sac outlets. They're both great. Yes. And they both are combo pieces in decks.
1: Um, they're both free instant speed sacrifice outlets, which I think is one of the nicest things about them.
2: Yeah, being able to instantly sacrifice your creature can sometimes... like They could print a zero mana artifact that just says, sacrifice a creature, do nothing, and that would still see play because preventing someone from exiling your creature or from stealing your creature, just being able to make sure it ends up in the graveyard instead of anywhere else can be very, very helpful. So mm-hmm. these are both really good cards. I think I'm leaning towards Viserys here just because I think black is a more popular color overall than red, So, but that's not really a, a, a strong commitment to it, but that is sort of where I'm leaning.
0: I think I will go with the Seer as well just for the for the reason that I've seen him in a lot of vampire tribal decks as well because he's a one-drop and there's not a ton of really useful one-drop vampires um, unless you're you know playing like Edgar Aristocrats. So I, I, I would guess between his u- utility as a sack outlet in stuff like Prosh, Food Chain, um, I think he's also a useful card in other decks specifically as a vampire. So I'm going to guess the Seer as well. Well, you
1: both are correct. So nice job. Uh, yeah. Visc- yeah. Viscera Seer is in uh, 12,620 decks. Uh, Goblin Bombardment, 9,254. So, uh, But they both, you know, I did a little bit of research. They're both the number one played card that says sacrifice a creature in that color. So nice. both are kind of, like I said, that gold standard of, uh, you know, if I need an instant speed sac outlet, what do I just need to go to quick and easy? Those two are the the ones that you should be looking at first.
2: Yeah, seer is especially powerful in my Marion of Clan Neltoth deck, but Goblin Bombardment is really fantastic in an Omnath Locus of Rage deck because mm-hmm. you can sacrifice your elementals to just hurl the mattered opponent doing damage. Those are those are both really good cards. Yep. Nice job, guys. Alright. I'm going to go next. I mentioned earlier with my Balin pick, there's a really popular equipment, Sword of Feast and Famine. Sword of Feast and Famine is an awesome equipment that gives your guy pro-black, pro-green, and can also untap your lands. Really great sword, but it's one of a cycle. There's Sword of Feast and Famine, but there's also Sword of Fire and Ice, Sword of Light and Shadow, Sword of Body and Mind, Sword of War and Priest, a whole big cycle of them from the Mirrodin series. Sword of Feast and Famine is currently the number one most played sword at 16,391 decks, but I want you guys to guess... What's the number two most played sword?
1: Oh, man. I want to say I'm leaning just my first gut feeling, I guess, is fire and ice. Just because Sophie is everybody thinks of legacy where the card is an absolute house with stone blade decks. I think it's fire and ice just because people like drawing a card. I don't think it should be. I think it should probably be light and shadow. But I think there's so many people that just think of the reputation of Fire and Ice and they just throw it in a deck. So I'm going to go with that one.
0: Um, I am going to go with Light and Shadow because, number one, I think it's the cheapest of the swords. It was in that Modern Body Event deck, I believe. Is Body and Mind the cheapest? Body of Mind is like it, $5. It is currently the least expensive, okay. yeah. Uh, Light and Shadow, I think, was in the Modern Event deck, I believe. I'm not positive really useful people tend to like pro black and white so that's what i'm gonna go with but i mean i think fire and ice is pretty pricey as well fire yeah it 45 for fire and ice so i bet but that might be irrelevant too so i'm gonna go with with light and shadow all right this is one of those things that i actually kind of wanted to bring up because the
2: price of these cards as we mentioned sort of body and mind is the least expensive right now but it actually is also the least played that's kind of an interesting metric there Matt is correct, it is Sword of Fire and Ice. It currently shows up in 8,720 decks, most notably in a bunch of equipment-based decks such as Sram, Nahiri, and Kemba. Sword of Light and Shadow is the third most played sword at 600, Excuse me, 6,955, and it also shows up in things like Kemba or Nahiri, stuff like that. Body and Mind is currently showing up in the least amount of decks, only at 4,390, mostly in Lazav decks, which makes sense. Body and Mind can mill some people, which is sort of like that's where you'd want to put them is in a Lazav deck whereas the other swords you're going to put those in a deck where you have a Voltron commander that doesn't care about milling your opponent fire and ice can deal some damage draw you a card light and shadow can gain you some life and get back one of your most valuable creatures like a stoneforge mystic or a sun titan stuff like that so they're both very very powerful but fire and ice drawing that extra card does seem to appeal to more people and uh, it is currently showing up in more decks
1: Yeah, I think it should be light and shadow. I think the protection is way more relevant, kind of like what Dana was talking about a couple weeks ago with all that targeted removal and black and white. So if you have a creature you want to protect, light and shadow, plus getting any creature back from your graveyard, um, I think those are way more impactful than two damage because everybody always talks about we're in a 40 life format, so really you're only dealing one damage because you have twice the life as as a 60 card format.
2: Yeah, that was my initial thought as well, but looking more closely at Fire and Ice, it does have that draw a card trigger, and as you mentioned, things like mono-white equipment decks, they don't have a lot of ways to draw cards, so running Sword of Fire and Ice helps mitigate some of the the losses of your, your particular color pie. The fact that white can't draw cards very well is mitigated a little bit by the fact that Fire and Ice can draw you cards, especially when you shove it on something like Balin or Rafiq. Or any double-striking card, because then you can draw multiple cards off of that, which that's pretty useful. So I think that might be why Fire and Ice is seeing a bit more play than Light and Shadow. The protection is good, but drawing cards is also
0: really good.
1: Good point, Joey. Good point.
0: (laughs) Dana, what do you got for us? Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) I'm up next. Um, Okay, so back in Alpha, there was a cycle of cards made in each color that cost one lone mana to cast. Um, they all did something in a cluster of three. So you had Healing Salve and White for one white that gained you three life, printed three damage. You had Ancestral Recall in blue that drew you three cards. You had Lightning Bolt that did three damage to any target. You had Dark Ritual that gave you three black mana and Giant Growth that gave a creature plus three, plus three. Ancestral Recall is banned and it's, you know, $20 million to buy. Um, Healing Salve is terrible, (laughs) even in Fire Song and Sunspeaker. But the other three are somewhat playable, if not quite playable. So of the three, which is Lightning Bolt, Dark Ritual, and Giant Growth, which is the most played in EDH? Uh,
2: I would lean towards Dark Ritual, I, but I don't feel strongly about this. I don't think Giant Growth is useful. As a combat trick, just, just combat tricks in general are not usually all that helpful, at least at that low power of a scale. In something like limited giant growth can be a backbreaker sometimes in combat, but in stuff like EDH, what you need to do is like give a creature plus twenty, plus twenty to stop your opponent's Avicen from coming in, or you need to prevent all the damage and then your selfless squire gets huge or something like that. Like those are the big swingy combat tricks that you need in EDH. As for lightning bolts, one mana for three damage, that's pretty low. Like we deal with a lot of creatures that have more than for toughness in this format. So I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of utility there. So I think the one-off sort of... The, the, the Dark Ritual getting you a little bit more mana might see a bit more competitive play, which would push its numbers a little higher than the rest.
0: Matt, what are your thoughts?
1: Uh, I'm kind of torn because I I think that all the cards in the cycle are kind of underpowered for Commander. I, th- I think unless you're trying to storm out Dark Ritual... Probably just, I don't know. I'm not. A, I'm not a big fan of them. I think Lightning Bolt is going to be the more played w- card in this cycle, just because you're in the you're in the sixth best color for commander, as we like to to joke <laughs> around with.
2: Hey, as you like to joke
0: around, not we.
1: Hey, Jason Alt, content manager of Edhrec.com, started that joke many moons ago. I'll, I'm just carrying on that tradition.
2: Don't appeal to our content manager just so you don't get fired.
1: <laughs> he already fired me like a couple days ago. I don't remember what I did. But I think Lightning Bolts is going to be there just because it's been printed a bunch. Of, I think it's just kind of that gold standard for removal. And I think people just kind of assume, kind of like Sword of Fire and Ice, what's well, super good in 60 card formats. So I might as well just throw it in there because I need, you know, a 60th card
0: to play in mono red or something. I think it'll be Lightning Bolt. Um, All right, going in, my guess, before I looked at the numbers, was also Lightning Bolt. The correct answer, however, is Dark Ritual. Ritual's in about 1,150 decks, and Lightning Bolt's in about 7,500. Giant growth way down, it's like an 800-ish decks. Now, I, I I don't see any of those cards that frequently, but I would wager that the more competitive your meta gets you probably see bolt and ritual a lot more particularly if you're talking like the cdh level at that point three damage does kill a whole lot of the creatures that you're going to see and that three mana dark ritual on turn one or two does make a radical difference when the game ends on turn you know three or four but that's you know such a small percentage of people that actually play that you know you can really doesn't really probably affect our numbers very much so with the numbers we have, Dark Ritual is the winner. I was I was kind of surprised. Not that it isn't a good card, but for the average commander player who's probably grinding out you know ten turn games, I would say on average, um, it's not that impactful.
2: It is interesting to see which of those classic cards makes it all the way this far in the future. You know, twenty four years later, as the game has progressed, it's interesting to see which of those cards persists. Uh, like Lightning Bolt is fantastic in other formats, but here we're kind of like, eh. Dark Ritual is fantastic, but here we're kind of like, uh, you know, if you're playing competitively, Ancestral Recall, that thing's ridiculous. That's bannably good. It's just, it's funny to me to look back at all of those cards and, and, you know, try and guess which of these would be most popular, to try and figure out what about them would be good for this wildly different format than the creator ever anticipated. It's a, well, it, it's a weird exercise. It's to such a funny
0: cycle because you have like healing salve that even at the time was a terrible card. And right. any events that a recall, which today remains the best spell ever printed. <laughs> so, like, yeah. it's that wild of a swing between the, between the cards and the cycle. Alrighty, folks. We're not done with underplayed commanders just yet. We
2: talked about some commanders earlier that were outside the top five of their color pie. But we also have a couple of very underplayed commanders that we want to take a look at as well. These are commanders that have under 100 decks and that we think deserve to see a bit more play than being relegated to the under 100 zone. Matt, would you like to start us off with your very underplayed commander and why he's so good?
1: I sure can. So I've been raving about this commander lately. Um, He's just been a super, super fun deck despite being mono red. Um, But Valduk, Keeper of the Flame, so far there's only 27 decks on EDHREC uh, with Valduk to his name. So I... I think this might be some personal bias. I know he's only got 27 decks. That's definitely going to change. But I'm going to make a bold statement here and say that Valdek, he does Voltron type stuff very differently than Godo, but he's also very aggressively costed. He's only three mana. He might be a top five mono red commander a couple years down the road. I just think he's super fun. You don't actually have to attack with him. You don't have to go all in. I was looking at different things that you can do with Valduk that don't involve attacking, you can use him, you know, uh, throw a Paradise Mantle on them, turn him into a Mana Dork, and it counts towards his equipment, which makes more elementals. Uh, you don't have to attack with him. It's just super fun because you don't have to use him through combat to have him be relevant. Uh, he just. Right. Does- so,
2: as a quick. As a quick reminder for our listeners who may not remember, Valduk, Valduk Keeper of the Flame, a three mana three two human shaman. At the beginning of combat on your turn, for each aura and equipment attached to Valduk, you create a three one elemental creature token with trample and haste, and then those tokens get exiled at the next end step. So you're saying this guy could become one of the top five red commanders? I think I know it's very
1: bold, but I I don't. It wouldn't surprise me at all. He's just been super fun to play with. Uh, he just does things differently than a lot of other mono red commanders have recently. And I mean, if you want to go all in aggro, all in Voltron with him, you can. If you don't, if you want to sit back and you know protect him and just build up something big and don't worry about getting blown out by a Celestial Flare or whatever, you can have everything go wide and it's super fun.
0: That's either a really bold statement or it's a reflection on the other mono red commanders.
2: Probably a little bit of both, <laughs> right? Dana, what's your pick for a very underplayed commander?
0: My pick for a very un- underplayed commander, and I, I I cheated a little bit because I actually have this as a commander in a deck. It's Jeru with Eyes Open, who's in 59 decks currently, in as a mono white commander. Um, for those who don't remember, because why would you? Um, he's three three <laughs> right? He's three white white um, with vigilance, and when Jeru with Eyes Open enters the battlefield, you may search your library for a Planeswalker card. And put it into your hand. Then shuffle your library. Um, he also has if your source would if a source would deal damage to a planeswalker you control, prevent one of that damage. So so he's the reason he's better than you think he is. I'm not going to argue he's great or anything, but the reason he's better than you think he is is because he does the one thing that almost no other mono white commander does, and that's provide card advantage, which is by virtue of putting a planeswalker into your hand. There are 15 white or colorless walkers you can actually get with him. Kytheon actually makes it 16, but you can't fetch him because he's in your library as a creature. Um, But there's three Johnnies, three Elspeths, five Gideons, if you count the intro deck one, two Karns, one Nahiri, and a Yugen. Did you call it a Yugen? A Yugen. Um. A Yugen. (laughs) At least call him Eugene if you're going to butcher the pronunciation. I believe he's Eastern European, and I believe it's pronounced Yugen. Actually, I'm making making that up. I have no idea. You guys Um, need to quit ugging me off here. Right, exactly. (laughs) Um, so what I found out, and I built the deck kind of as a joke because, hey, mono white super friends, that's not going to be remotely useful. But what I kind of discovered was there's some synergies you really don't realize until you play the deck. For one of those of those planeswalkers that are available, seven of them make tokens. And you're in colors with Catherine's Crusade, you're in colors with Anointed Procession, um, it's white so you have a ton of anthems. So you actually have kind of a token deck there just by virtue of running those planeswalkers. And all five of the Gideons turn into creatures as well. So you don't need to run that many creatures because your Planeswalkers do a pretty good job of creating bodies, and those bodies can then swing back to deal damage. I was just genuinely shocked how effective it was, at least compared to what my expectations were. Uh, White also has blink effects, so you can like blink Geru to get multiple triggers off his... Planeswalker fetch ability or, you know, you have things like Panharmonicon or conjurer's Closet. So you can get a lot of Planeswalkers into your hand really, really quickly.
2: conjurer's Closet, that's a really cool one as well. I have a quick question about Jero: Is Elspeth one of the first
0: Planeswalkers that you
2: go and grab or do you have
0: like a Elspeth Sun's Champion a is almost always the first one I go grab. And if she isn't, it's probably because I have her in hand already because <laughs> I've drawn her and I don't <laughs> need to go get her. But yeah, almost almost always Elspeth is one one of the ones I go get first, usually followed by whichever Gideon it is that makes the emblem that gives creatures plus one plus one. But 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 pretty frequently I can I can get, you know, four or five or six of those emblems out in one game. It doesn't take that long because there's a lot of effects also whether it's think like Windbrisk Heights, um, there's a couple artifacts that let you then cycle cards from your graveyard back into your library, so after your planeswalkers die, you can just flip them back into the library and go fetch them again with with Jero.
2: So what would you say to someone who's familiar with the Atraxa Super Friends deck? Like we see a lot of those, and Atraxa opens up colors to a whole bunch of different types of planeswalkers. And you're advocating a mono-white planeswalker deck, what would you say to someone who's Saying, well,
0: why not just play Atraxa? I mean, Atraxa is obviously better. Um, probably every other Super Friends deck that's like an established commander for the archetype is probably better. The reason I think you would play Jero, and the reason I play it is it's not something anyone else to shop probably has. It's much more effective than people think it's going to be. So it's not bad at all. It's actually something you can win games with, particularly in a more casual environment. And you can't really talk trash when you beat someone with an Atraxa deck. Atraxa being in a gazillion <laughs> decks and winning a games. If someone loses to, to a Dajero Super Friends deck, you absolutely have trash-talking rights against that person till the <laughs> end of time. It's true.
1: No, I, I really like that you can sit down you know, with strangers and say, Oh yeah, I have an Elspeth Suns Champion deck, and then put Jero in the command zone. Because you know exactly what you're going to tutor for first.
0: Right, exactly. <laughs> it's
2: Elspeth Sun's champion, so. Alrighty, so for my mega underplayed commander, I'm going to be looking at Vona, Butcher of Magon. This recently came out in Ixalan. A legendary vampire knight for 5 mana, 4-4, with vigilance and lifelink that can tap to pay 7 life and destroy target non-land permanent. You can only activate this ability during your turn. You can activate it at any time during your turn, but only during your turn, which is a little awkward. When I first looked at Vona, I was not really a fan. But the longer that I looked at Vona, the more ideas that I started to have. And this is one of the reasons that we wanted to talk about underplate commanders is because they can open up some doors in your mind in really clever ways. More particularly, Vona can do things like attack, since she's got Vigilance, then tap, pay that life, and destroy something like a blocker. And you're paying 7 life, but she's got lifelink, so if you power her up, then you're going to be getting a return on that investment, which is really cool. Most particularly what I like about Vona is that the way that she's being built right now on EDH Rec is totally wrong. You look on her page, and just like we noted with Miri earlier there's a whole bunch of cat cards cat tribal stuff happening in Miri and there's a whole bunch of vampire stuff happening with Vona but I don't think that's the Axis that makes her most interesting. One of the coolest cards, in my opinion, that came out in the Ixalan block was this card called Axis of Mortality, a four-white-white white enchantment that lets you switch players' life totals, and that's the angle that I wanted to look at with Vona. She can eviscerate your own life total, pay a bunch of life, and then you can use cards like Axis of Mortality to switch that life total with someone else's. That's really cool for me. You can destroy their board using your life as a resource and then give your life away and refuel using theirs, which is a really fun thing that I, that's just an angle on a commander that I don't think I ever would have noticed if I hadn't been paying really close attention. And I needed to pay really close attention to the super underplayed commander who everyone, like 45.6% of Vona decks are currently vampire tribal. And I, I think that that should maybe be turned around a little. Give Vona a second glance. It's kind of awkward,
0: it feels a little clunky, but if you can make it work, it can do a lot of work. I think the biggest problem Vona has is there's a whole bunch of those Orzhov commanders that kind of do life gain, life loss things. None of them are really the same, but there's just a lot of competition to kind of do semi-similar things. So then Vona comes out and I agree it's a it's a good and underplayed card. People are like, oh well, I'm not going to change my Ayahwee deck to this. Or I'm not going to change my Daxos enchantment, you know, variant to this. We're not going to change my Cabal whatever he is, <laughs> the, the the black white cabal deck. So there's a bunch of those that kind of share the same space. And I think that kind of makes then the the sixth or seventh version of that something that people don't really pay close attention to and maybe they should
2: right so I actually wrote a short while ago when Vona was released I wrote a commander showdown pitting Vona against Karlov of the Ghost Council and Ailey Eternal Pilgrim since they're (laughs) the most famous life gain commanders in black and white and the realization that I came away from that article with I realized that Vona she was nothing at all like those commanders they want to gain a bunch of life and use that life as a resource to destroy things but Vona is using her life as a resource in a very different way, and the way that I ended the article was actually by comparing her not to Ailey or to Karlov, but actually to the card Selenia Dark Angel. She's got a very bizarre ability where she can pay life to return to your hand, really weird legendary black-white creature. And what people will do in a Selenia deck is pay a bunch of life, hold priority so that they don't resolve immediately, to go down to like one or two life, and then allow the trigger to resolve to return to your hand, eviscerating their life total, and then handing it off to other people. That's what I noticed when I was looking at bonus page. I saw that card axis of mortality and there wasn't a whole lot of information on bonus page aside from Ixalan cards and I wanted to take a look around how do I get more information on a commander that doesn't have a whole lot of information. So I picked a card that I was kind of interested in and then took a look at where that card is showing up that being the axis of mortality card and that shows up currently in 80 percent of Selenia decks. So I was able to sort of Backdoor my way into a deck that was a lot more fun than just the regular data that I was seeing would imply, and that was a really fun exercise for me. The initial comparison that I made to those life game commanders was nothing like the reality. I'm using my life in a resource as a resource in a completely different way, and she was actually more akin to a very different commander than what I had expected. And that's what's so valuable about underplay commanders is that they force you to break down your walls. They force you to you know, to interrogate your own assumptions about the game. And that's a really cool exercise.
0: Yeah, for sure. Completely agree.
1: Yeah. and I would say, yeah, it just gives you a way to, to do things that aren't explicitly laid out for you already too. kind of, like I said, with Miri, it doesn't say tokens, but that doesn't mean she's not a fantastic token commander. Uh, Balin, you know, he's just overshadowed a little bit, but you get to do something just a little different. Um, You just get to expand your horizons a little bit and, you know, do things maybe that aren't exactly laid out for you, get to do a little bit of your own thinking and come up with something that might be a little cooler in the long run.
2: Right. So I mentioned one of the tips that I like when there's a commander on EDA track that doesn't have a whole lot of data. One of the ways that I took a look at how do I build this commander was to find a key card that I'd like to play around and exploring that card's page. I mentioned the Access Mortality, and you can find a whole bunch of other cards like it, like Reverse the Sands or Repay in Kind or uh, what is it, Soul Conduit is another one, and they all mess around with life totals. But what are some tips that you guys use when you're trying to build around a commander that doesn't have a whole lot of information on the website?
0: Well, if it's me, I, first of all, I, I kind of start with, if you if you look at the commander and you're looking at, for example, um, Reese the Exiled, and, and I had never... I found Reese in researching this show. It wasn't like I had a plan to build a restack, So I was just looking through the Golgari Commanders. I went through a bunch of different color combinations and I saw Reese. I'm like, okay, well, I should read this card closer and I read his abilities. I'm like, okay, well, he does things with life gain. Okay, and he has a sack outlet based in, based on, built into him. So then you can just like, okay, well, well, what things trigger when a creature is sacrificed or when a creature dies? And you can just type those keywords and go to something like scryfall and you know set your color combination to green and blue or to to exclude colors that aren't green and black and type in things that would trigger when a creature dies i know the grave pact is a relatively obvious one people know about but you might not have known about uh, butcher malkir which is a vampire from zendikar that essentially is a grave pact on a body so you can find those synergies there just by figuring out that thing you want, and then putting those keywords in and excluding the colors and and doing a scryfall search.
2: Yeah, focusing on one particular aspect of that commander, you mentioned you looked at the sacrifice built into reason. That's not a thing that we see a lot on most of our commanders. They don't usually promote your stuff dying. And so just by focusing in on one particular, uh, apparently erroneous detail, and initially you just would sort of glance over it, but focusing in on just one of those, you can uncover a whole lot of different strategies. That's a, a really cool, really cool tip. Matt, do you have any possible tricks that you like to use? or
1: Yeah, well, and one that I, you know, when I built my Valduck deck that I started using, and it's a feature that we probably added in the past six months, I want to say. It's, it's a fairly recent addition to, to the site, but there's a recent decks tab. When you're looking at, you know, like I said, Valduck, Keeper of the Flame, you can look at any recent decks that people have uploaded, with that commander so you can look at full deck lists you don't have to just look at the top x cards of whatever type you can look at full deck lists that's how i found some stuff uh like my pick of the week last week like betrothed of fire and mob mentality for valduk i found just one random person playing both of those in a deck list and was blown away i was like man you're never gonna see stuff like that on a rec page because nobody's ever playing it but you find some really good stuff in there Um, So going through entire deck lists for certain commanders, especially when there's not a lot of detail out there, or searching for a commander that is kind of similar, maybe is a little bit older. Uh, You know, I was looking at Godot, Bandit, Warlord. I was looking at those decks when I was trying to get ideas for Valduk because Godot searches for equipments, and so he's got a lot of uh, that Voltron aspect to him as well. So looking at similar but different commanders, maybe in a different color setup or anything like that those are two tips that i would say i've used a lot
2: recently those are some excellent that's i, I really like that that's good advice especially the recent dex tab it's nice that EDHREC it just compiles a whole bunch of information right there for you even if it's not immediately on the page it provides a lot of resources that you can use to find the information you need and as Dana mentioned as well, Scrifle is another excellent search engine.
1: Yeah, the the recent decks tab is especially helpful if you want to do what you were talking about, Joey, where you want to build around a certain card and you want to find the best commander for it. So, you know, say you're looking at, you know, something that goes in the 99, you're going to get a slew of different commanders uh, from all across the board and you can kind of pick which one stands out to you. I like it a lot.
0: What's nice about the recent deck tabs as well is it's showing you decks that have presumably been recently updated. So you're getting someone who's probably curating their deck in a way that, you know, just randomly finding a deck for a commander online might not be. You know, you don't know if you're finding a deck online. You have to then look and see, well, when was this slot's updated? What stuff is missing? Whereas if it's on the recent deck tab, it's something that's presumably been updated at some point in the near future and is much more likely to be a deck that someone has put a lot of time and energy and thought into versus one that they might have thrown up, you know, once upon a time and just let sit there. Very solid advice. I like it a lot. All right. Let's wrap up the show by
2: challenging some stats. Dana, do you want to start us off by challenging the statistics on a couple of cards that
0: are maybe seeing too little play or too much play? All right. The card I'm going to be picking, I think is underplayed is delay. It's a counter spell for one in a blue. It says counter target spell. If the spell is countered this way, exile it with three time counters on it instead of putting it into its owner's graveyard. If it doesn't have suspend, it gains suspend. So essentially, whatever spell you hit with delay doesn't go off for three turns. Now, the reason I think it's a really, really good counter spell, and, it, and it's only in just under 3,000 decks, but it's first of all, two mana counter spells are always really, really useful, particularly in decks that aren't just mono blue, because in this case. It's one in a blue, so you don't need to keep two mana free, and that can be kind of tricky in a non-mono deck. It's a hard counter, which is also relatively rare at two mana. There's counter spell, and that may be it. Uh, mana drain, I guess. But anything you hit with delay is just countered. Now, now it comes back after three turns, but it isn't like a negate where you know a creature's going to slip through. This is just going to stop that spell, period. And if the spell is a counter spell, well, it's, it's worthless. Who cares if it comes back into play in three turns? There's nothing for it to counter. Or if it's a combat trick, like you don't care if that Arachnogenesis goes off when no creatures are attacking, or you don't care if that Aetherize goes off when there's nothing happening, or Teferi's protection, you know, going off three turns later is, isn't protecting anything. So there's a lot of spells that by delaying them three turns, they're just countered. They become worthless. And even if they don't, pushing a spell back three turns really 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 often puts you to the point where it doesn't matter anyway if if it's a board wipe you're countering you can very often kill the person like they weren't going to board wipe unless you had a superior board state more often than not well if you can push that back three turns you can probably just kill them with that superior board state before it goes off so most of the time it's been my experience that delay is just a counter spell full stop it just counters the spell and the fact that it's only in under three thousand decks, that's a mistake. It should be in way more counterspell packages.
2: That's a really—it's uh, that's something that I've looked at delay, and I've I've just wondered to myself, can I kill them before the spell would actually come back around? So it's good to hear that you've actually tested it in the field and can report back that yeah, frequently you don't really care about the three turn delay. It's one that I've always been eyeing, but very unsure of. The decks that I play tend to prolong the game I'm afraid I'm sure. not playing too many control decks but I'm doing things like kaneos and tiro or crucifix for example and uh, they can make the game run a little bit longer so that's been my main fear with delay but especially if I think you have a talrand deck is that correct I do yeah right so you're making a bunch of tokens so you can just swarm in and get rid of the person before the spell comes back right so that's a really good use case for it and actually the
0: main use I I I played in that deck I think it's in that deck but it's definitely in my Sphinx tribal deck and in that deck, it's, it's two colors for one, so in most Sphinxes are also very mana intensive, particularly in terms of blue mana, they're almost all two, if not three, so being able to have a counterspell available that only requires me to leave one blue mana free is a pretty big deal.
2: I like it a lot.
1: I just, I keep thinking of having a Teferi's protection delayed, and then three turns later they basically, like, skip their turn. Oh, wow. And it just gets fussy because I'm thinking of playing my Edgar Markov deck and, like, getting time-walked to send Yeah, somebody. I mean, <laughs>
0: there's a crazy. lot of times that it actually makes oh, spell Right, it, there's times so it bad. makes spells bad, if not... Like, it, it hurts the person for having cast it, for sure. Right,
2: if, if you're delaying their uh, blasphemous act or something, then they don't want to put creatures on the board because they know in three
0: turns their own spell is going to destroy them all. And technically, now I've never seen this happen, but, like, if you were playing, you know, say a blue-green deck, or excuse me, a blue-red deck or something with... Jockle Hops, so or you're playing a blue-white deck with Armageddon, you could technically suspend some big, fat creature, blow up all the lands, and then have it, you know, kind of like the original Joyra, pop back into play in two turns when no one has any board state left, and then win the game. Usually I say you're a mean man, Mr. Morgan, but you're a mean man, Mr. Roach. <laughs> I've never seen it done. I've never done it myself. But, I mean, that's a play that could exist. So it's a card that not only functions as a counterspell, but you could do some other tricks with it as well.
2: Alrighty.
1: Sounds like you just challenged yourself. <laughs> exactly, there we go.
2: <laughs> Alrighty, so for my pick this week for challenging the stats, I'm going to be looking at a card that shows up in 1,997 decks, and that is the card Reconnaissance. This is a one-mana white enchantment that has the weirdest ability for 0, colon, remove target attacking creature you control from combat and untap it. In parentheses, it says that creature neither deals nor receives combat damage this turn. This card is broken, and I don't mean that it's unfair... I mean that it literally does not do what it says it should do. And and I'm kind of not even really comfortable talking about it because it feels so wrong. And when I explain it, people will probably think that I'm lying. But the way that this card works... Oh, so good. The way that this card works, it can actually be used to untap your creatures after they have already dealt combat damage, which is bizarre. So the way that the combat phase works, there are five steps in combat. There's the beginning of combat, declare attackers, declare blockers, combat damage, and end of combat. Players can cast spells and activate abilities during each of those steps, which matters for a lot of stuff. There are a whole bunch of things that, like, I'll put a Sakura Chai in front of your creature, and then before the damage step, I'll sacrifice it. Or Blade of Selves, for example, will create tokens that exile themselves during that end-of-combat step. But during all five of those steps, your creature is still considered an attacking creature. Even if it's already done the combat damage step, in that number five end-of-combat step, it's still quote-unquote attacking, which means the card Reconnaissance can be used to untap your creature after it has already dealt damage. This is really cool just because it gives free vigilance to all of your creatures, but it can also save any creature that has an unfavorable block situation happening. But most importantly, I bring it up because I mentioned Vona earlier. Vona has that weird tap ability to pay a bunch of life and then destroy something, which you can do while she's attacking. With the card reconnaissance, you can untap her and then let her use her ability again and then untap her, and then use her ability again, and then untap her, and then use her ability again. Like, there's a whole bunch of different interactions that you can use with this card Reconnaissance to untap your attacking creatures because of a weird loophole in the rules, and you can take advantage of their tap abilities while doing so. It's a totally bizarre card, it's one of the better white cards that you can play in this format, but it also involves a loophole, which is probably why a lot of people don't know about it, and... Anyway, I think that it deserves to see more play, but if you do play it, be kind because it literally breaks what the rules say. Like It doesn't do what it says
0: it should do, so if you use this loophole, just be nice about it. Well, I think the, one of the biggest problems with it being played too is, is this was released in June of 1998, so in like three weeks, it's 20 years old and it's had no reprint then since then. So we say this a lot of times with underplayed cards, but this is another one where I think most people probably have no idea this card even exists.
2: Or what it can do. For sure, absolutely. It it doesn't look like it should be able to do the ridiculous stuff that I just explained. But over the course of 24 years, this game has had a lot of different rules, which means that some cards will fall through loops in those rules, and this happens to be one of them. For the record, you can actually do this with Maze of Ith as well. You can attack with a creature and then untap it after it's already dealt damage. It's such a weird, bizarre interaction in the combat phase, but these are things that you can do. And I just make sure that you know how it works before you do this in a game, especially if the people you're going to be playing with have no idea how it works, because it will look like you're cheating. It will genuinely look like you're cheating. But that's how good the card is.
1: Yeah, it's super counterintuitive. But yeah, I was about to say, you can do the same thing, but it's just people don't think that they want to maze a right. their own creature. Usually think of it as a defensive thing, but you, you know it's defensive for you taking it out. I love Reconnaissance. Uh, I play it in my... My Mary deck that I had for a little bit, where it was awesome because you can attack with Mary, pull her back out of combat so they still can't choose to block her with their one blocker. Uh, It's also absolutely bug nutty crazy with Narset decks because you can attack, get that attack trigger, play your, your extra turn spells,
2: whatever you want to do, then get Narset out of combat. It's stupid, and I love this card. Yeah, Reconnaissance is currently showing up in 903 Alesha decks, so Alesha players know about it, but it's showing up in 145 Narset decks as the number two commander for Reconnaissance, so that's a really steep drop-off. Probably a lot of more people should know about Reconnaissance. It's a crazy card that can do a lot of really ridiculous things. Matt, what's your pick this week? So my pick this week is
1: Fumigate as an underplayed card, but it's really just kind of a placeholder for five mana wraths in general. Um, I think a lot of players, and this is based off recent experience, a lot of people, you know, say, oh, I need Damnation if I'm playing black, and I need Wrath of God if I'm playing white. I need those four mana wraths, but if unless, like Dana said about his pick, unless you're in a super competitive, you know, play group, you don't need a Wrath on four 99% of the time. You can, play, you can pay that one extra mana for a five mana wrath and get some sort of upside, whether it's end hostilities and you blow up and ruin that Rafik player's day or that Balin player's day. But Fumigate, you know, destroy all creatures and you gain one life for each creature destroyed this way for, you know, five mana. All these five mana wraths you can build around and they're going to be, in a lot of times, way better than all these four mana wraths that a lot of people just assume they need for their colors. It's... The, the competitive edge, sure, you know, if, if your playgroup has evolved to that point, by all means, play your four mana wraths, but you don't really need them because a lot of times you can play Crux of Fate in your Dragon's deck instead of Damnation, and you can blow them out and it can be the best card in your deck. You can play even some six mana wraths, like the one from Born of the Gods that destroys all non-enchantment creatures that I'm probably going to play because I'm in my Moldrotha deck because I'm playing a lot of enchantment creatures uh, like course of crew fix because I can choose them as my enchantment for the turn to cast. But just wraths that don't cost four, there's so much upside to them that it's really worth looking at, even though it's not the you know your standard I have
0: to play a four mana Dan, wrath. Dan, I think here. you might have some expertise in this area. I believe I wrote an article about um, not playing Day of Judgment. In Fumigate you, you mentioned like you know killing a few creatures and gaining some life and that's frequently what happens Fairly frequently with Fumigate, it's not just a few life. There's enough situations where someone's token deck has just, you know, pooped out 25 zombie tokens or something like that. Like, you can pretty frequently gain enough life to put yourself out of kill range. Like, it, it's a, it, it mm-hmm. can be. It isn't always, but it can be a game-altering card. You not only wipe the board, you sometimes gain enough life that it's really difficult to then kill you.
1: Yeah, Fumigate yeah. a lot of times can be two cards in one. It can be destroy all creatures, double your life total. It can be a, a beacon of immortality at the same time for one more mana than that Day of Judgment. I just think there's there's so much upside to, to five mana wraths or just wraths that don't cost four. But a lot of players, you know, I, I played in a game a couple weeks ago and the, the, they were saying, I need to draw my wrath right now when they really didn't. You know, not a whole lot was going on. But if they would have drawn a Fumigate when I had you know, 60 tokens on the board because the game stalled out, they would have put themselves so far to reach.
2: I mean, the game would have just gone on forever. Yeah, I'll gladly play... Just I'll, I'll pay one additional mana to gain 25 life. That sounds like a great exchange. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah, every day. Or I'll pay one additional mana for, like, a hallowed burial, a five-mana wrath that actually, instead of destroying creatures, puts them all on the bottom of their owner's libraries. I mean, the tuck rule isn't a thing anymore, but that can still mess up a Marin player's day. Like, Day of Judgment, Wrath of God, those are not the end-all, be-all. They are... They they set the bar, but paying a little extra mana can usually be worth it. There are some really cool effects to to take advantage of past the four mana mark. So that's a, a good pick. I like it a lot. Alrighty, folks. Do you have any other last minute, I don't know, tips, quips, anything about playing underplayed commanders?
0: The one thing I would say is I think if you're a listener, you should go go to EDH Rack, and if you click on Commanders, you know, spend ten minutes because you can go through most of these in ten minutes. Go to go to the color combinations underneath commander. So if you click on commander, you can go to mono or two color or whatever, pick your color combination, you know, and then there's a list that pops up immediately and you can scroll through every commander and see how many decks they're in. And you could go through most of the color combinations, like I said, in 10 minutes and see which ones are in 15 decks, which ones are in 20 decks. Find yourself one, like find a deck that's got a commander that's only, or a commander that's only in 42 decks or in 51 decks or something. There's a lot of cool ones there that you can build something around. And it's pretty rewarding sometimes to show up at a table with a deck nobody has seen and then win a game with it. I think it's worth doing. It's a good exercise. I think everyone should try it at least once. It's to try an oddball underplayed commander and build that deck.
2: Yeah, it is a fun flex. Alrighty, And with that, I think we're going to call this episode to a close. I'd like to thank my co-hosts for joining me. And if any of our listeners would like to get in touch with us, where can they find you all?
0: You can find me on Twitter, at Dana Roach, and you can listen to me once a week rambling about Commander, in addition to this show, on Commander Central.
1: Yeah, and you can find me on Twitter and and really all the social medias, at Mathimus55, that's M-A-T-H-I-M-U-S 55, or shoot us an email as well, edhreccast at gmail.com.
2: Yeah, we did have a listener come in, you know, right into the email saying, Matt, you're wrong about even Mind Sensor. So... Definitely send us more emails telling us that Matt is wrong. We'd love to hear it. That that's
1: fine. That's fine because I'm I'm gonna be right ultimately with Team Moldrothus. Yeah, so. we need more backup,
2: <laughs> folks. Alrighty, you can find me, Joey Schultz, at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can follow EDHREC on Facebook and Twitter at EDHREC and the EDHREC subreddit if you have a question or a request for a new site feature. P.S., if the EDHREC Facebook page gets 5,000 likes, there's going to be a giveaway, so head on over there and smash that like button for a chance at a cool prize. We're also doing a giveaway for the EDHREC cast Twitter page once we hit 1,000 followers, so be sure to check out EDHREC cast on Twitter as well. Check out Dana's other podcast at cmdrcentral.libson.com. You can check us out at edhreccast.libson.com or contact us at gmail.com. You can find us on iTunes. And if you do, please consider leaving a review to help us boost our visibility and help other folks find the podcast. You can find this podcast and more on EDHREC's very own community content spotlight section, where we feature as many other content creators as we can, from Command Zone, to Commander Spru, to Commander Versus, not to mention new articles published every day by EDHREC's own fantastic team of writers. We'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, and until then, remember, edH your deck before you your deck. I want I want.
1: I want Ken to throw you under the bus for, for all this keyboard pounding that you do in the middle of the cast.
2: So, I am so professional. I want Ken to make the the ending of this episode just, I want Ken to throw you under the bus.
0: Fortunately our mentor is drunk on most of his podcasts, so I you've got, <laughs> the bar is relatively low to clear here for professionalism. <laughs>